Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new criminal case. On Monday, March 20, 1995, several users of the underground lines in the outskirts of Tokyo were waiting for their train to go to work. Suddenly, there was a catastrophe. An unbearable odor filled the carriages. The passengers felt progressively ill, struggled to breathe. Five metro lines were targeted using deadly sarin gas. Morning, the country of the rising sun was in the midst of a nightmare, facing one of the worst attacks perpetrated on its soil since the end of the Second World War. Quickly, the authorities began to suspect a very powerful and wealthy religious group that had extended its influence beyond the country's borders and enjoyed political protection. The Amshin Rikyo, or Am Supreme Truth sect, whose charismatic guru, Chizu Matsumoto, better known as Shoko Asahara, was elevated to being the prophet of the apocalypse by his 10,000 followers. The deadly attack, with consequences worthy of a biochemical war, triggered a witch hunt against Shoko Ashihara and his followers, exposing disturbing truths that the population had always preferred to keep hidden because of the stoicism, resignation, and fear of scandals, which is very characteristic of the Japanese people. Let's take you back to the time and place of this incident which has long marked people's minds of a man who, as a guru, believed himself at one point to be above everything, the law, mortality, and humanity itself. 7 a.m. on Monday, 20th of March, 1995, at the Chiyoda metro station, many commuters were already waiting for their ride. It was the season of the Sakura festivities, a reverend sherry festival symbolizing the beginning of spring in Japan which usually lasts for at least three weeks. Most would have an off from the following day, which was also declared a public holiday. These festivities are considered sacred in the eyes of everyone across all generations. Employees prefer to bridge the gap by taking an additional day off from work, something that was otherwise not feasible. However, during this season, even the bosses did not oppose such an arrangement. The ones who chose to work lined up on the platforms, well-dressed, holding office bags or handbags, patiently waiting for their shuttle, which was due to arrive in five minutes. When the coach did arrive, there was no jostling, everything went smoothly. As the office workers took their place, the doors closed and the metro, with a metallic clang, immediately set off on its journey to the next station, Manuruchi. The metro was to ply to Kasumigaseki Station, Wayanagatacho and finally halted in Hibiya, 
The terminus in the center of Tokyo's business district. This is where most of the passengers were to get off the train. This area was home to all the government offices, banks, corporations, and private companies. Nine million travelers passed through this main station, the nerve center of Tokyo, every day. The workers were on their way to Manorochi. A general silence reigned in the passenger compartment. Some passengers took advantage of these peaceful moments to catch up on a few minutes of stolen sleep. The ones who were alert skimmed through their agenda for the day or read messages on their phones. The metro made a second stop at Kasumi Gaseki Station, and a few more passengers boarded the train crowding the cabin. Clack! The door shut again and the journey resumed. Suddenly, there was a strong, pungent smell like that of bleach. That took the passengers by surprise and woke up those who were half asleep. They assumed it to be an antiseptic spray, but it was not. The smell was like any other. In a few seconds, it invaded all the space, becoming more and more nauseating and unbearable. Quickly, some of them pulled out their Kleenex tissues to block their nose, mouth and eyes, but nothing helped. Some people already started to feel sick and could not control the urge to throw up, while others had violent headaches. Soon the air seemed to run out within the coach and the passengers began to suffocate and cough with dreadful spasms. Some tried to call for help, but the controllers seemed to have disappeared. A wave of panic started to spread among passengers, who did their best to trigger the alarm system. The A275K train was in the middle of a real disaster. The passengers started to collapse on the floor one after the another. Many suffocated, and the formal tight shirt collars and ties didn't help their ordeal. They didn't even have the strength to unbutton themselves. A similar sequence took place in the next train. Several women had fainted and lay dead on the floor. They were trapped in the underground metro, which continued onto the Hibiya terminus. On the floor of each train, a strange liquid started to spread, colorless like water. Nobody had noticed it yet, and in the general panic, people even walked over it. The emergency exits were blocked, and there was not a single molecule of oxygen left in the air. The barely perceptible voice of a coach manager could be heard faintly over the loudspeakers, giving orders to evacuate immediately. The arrival at Hibiya was chaotic. As soon as the metro doors opened, those who still had the strength ran over bodies of the other passengers, lying on the ground unconscious. In moments like these, the survival instinct surpasses all others. In a few moments, the platforms of the Hibiya terminus were transformed into an apocalyptic scene. However, the sound of ambulance sirens nearing gave some hope to the still conscious victims, but it was short-lived. An office worker recounted, Once outside, I looked around me, and what I saw was worse than all my nightmares. Three men in suits and ties were on the floor, livid, obviously strangled by their tongues. A controller, who just this morning had bowed to me to say hello, died in my lap. His eyes detached from their sockets. He had swallowed his tongue too. Halfway down the street, it was hell, but on the other side, people continued to go about their business in the most natural way, as if we were in two parallel worlds. I waited for more than an hour and a half for someone to come and help me, to give me even a little bit of water, but nobody came. So, with the little energy I had left, I walked to my office, more dead than alive. They didn't even order us a taxi or ask about us afterwards. The emotional shock had caught her off guard. The origin and the unknown damage of the disaster meant that neither the police, nor the fire brigade, nor the ambulance crew knew where to turn. Lack of coordination between the various rescue teams quickly became apparent. 
and delayed the intervention further. Some ambulances already on their way to Hibiya were alerted en route to turn back and head to Kasumigaseki Station, where the number of serious cases were likely higher. Was it a fire, a short circuit, a rail accident? It was an unimaginable incident in a country where every corner of the urban transport network was inspected, scrubbed and disinfected thoroughly before the start of each working day. Unthinkable in a country where the public is proactive and faults are repaired long before it causes undesirable effects or malfunctions. Unbelievable in a country that never left anything to chance, especially not when it comes to the safety of the working population, whose profitability at work is important as the unity of the nation itself. Inconceivable, yes, but not impossible. The search for the invisible culprit who had infiltrated the wagons, wrecking havoc, and whom no one had the power to stop, only to hurry up and save whatever could be saved. Rumors like terrorist attack or anti-government attack started to fly around. Alerted, the press rushed to the scene of the tragedy. The cameras broadcasted the images on the national channels, which had already interrupted their regular program schedule to cover the disaster in progress. Ambulance sirens continued to sound until nightfall. Firefighters, police and special forces were deployed around the various districts of Ibiya. The whole city of Tokyo was on a warpath. The next morning, the first reports were released and they were dramatic. There were 13 dead and 6,300 people in a very serious condition, both among the passengers and the underground staff. The victims had been taken to around 169 hospitals across the city, where most of them fell into a coma on arrival. On national and international television, people were talking about the most serious attack perpetrated on Japanese soil since the Second World War, as dramatic as the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. In the aftermath, the governor of Tokyo, Suzuki Sunishi, canceled all spring festivities and declared three days of national mourning, calling on the people to remain vigilant and to use their personal vehicles for domestic and professional travel. The rest of urban transport, notably shuttle trains and buses, were also temporarily suspended for fear of new attack of similar consequences. In the meantime, the investigations continued in the affected metro lines. An emergency meeting of a government scientific committee finally identified the substance responsible for the disaster. The liquid taken from the various carriages was none other than sarin gas, a powerful and volatile poison, colorless and 26 times deadlier than arsenic. Indeed, a single droplet deposited on the skin of a living being is enough to cause intoxication on the spot and death. The use of this poison dates back to the time of Nazism in Germany of the Third Reich. A few decades later, the Iraqi political leader Saddam Hussein used it against the Iranian army before transforming it into a weapon of mass extermination against the Kurdish population of his country during the infamous Operation Anfal. Knowing how the nature and the dangerousness of the poison used, the police investigation began in full swing like it was the end of the world. The stations of Chiyoda, Manorochi, Kasumigaseki, Nagatacho, and Hibiya were sealed. The CCTV tapes were combined through. The first images of those might be responsible for this national disaster began to appear. At each of the five stations, six individuals, dressed in sportswear and wearing surgical masks, were seen dropping off plastic bags and packages, which they pierced with an umbrella tip before fleeing. The Japanese authorities were no strangers to sarin gas and believed they had found the culprits. They have to act quickly and arrest them. One name came to mind. 
the Umshin Rikyo sect, more commonly known as Um Supreme Truth, previously accused of having manufactured homemade bombs, pesticides, and other toxic substances. Indeed, two years earlier in November 1993, in a village in west of Tokyo, Japanese police remembered seizing chemical residues from private buildings, all of which belonged to Omshin Rikyo. In the following weeks, the police were contacted several times by neighbors of these warehouses, complaining of the constant presence of white fumes and stench coming from the cult's premises. According to them, the fumes were making them ill and many experienced symptoms such as severe headaches and heart palpitations, the same symptoms experienced by the passengers on the metro. When questioned, the Om Shinrikyo scientists solemnly and unambiguously affirmed that they had done nothing wrong. According to them, these toxic residues are only used in manufacturing process of fertilizers and pesticides that they develop and market to agricultural companies, the profits of which contribute to the collective expenses of their religious community. That's all there is to it. The investigations were not persuaded further and none of the own members were under judicial investigation. And who else could? At the slightest hitch, the sect was used to brandishing its legitimacy as a spiritual structure recognized by the state and the government itself and maintained that nothing and nobody had the power to take away this title. However, since the sarin gas tragedy, this legitimacy had for the first time began to lose its credibility and had to be undermined. In addition, other sulfurous cases in which the name of Umshin Rikyo came up more than once were in the news. Troubled and riddled with the case of tax evasion, illegal investments abroad, usurpation of real estate under duress, brainwashing, assassinations, and incitements to suicide. One week after the Tokyo attack, 2,500 police officers, armed from head to toe, their faces hidden in protective masks, were sent to besiege the sect's headquarters in Kamakushiki, a small peaceful village located a few kilometers from Mount Fuji. The press also accompanied along the trip with a whole armada of cameramen desperate to capture the arrest of Shoko Ashahara and his retinue. At the spot, the police took over several buildings built in a minimalist architecture, opaque and identical covering several hectares of land. The place was quiet, clean, well-kept, surrounded by planters and bamboo fountains, and a place that exuded tranquility and invited meditation despite the horror that reigned in its depths. Inside the premises, agitation was the order of the day. The police rang the bell for the first time, but no one answered. Hidden behind a window, the leader of the sect tried to keep them away, addressing the policemen with latent aggressiveness. He ordered them to leave the premises immediately. What do you want? Leave us in peace. We have a search warrant. We have to search all the buildings and everything on the property. Who gave you the search warrant? And why do you want to poke your nose into our business? It is a government order. We have nothing to be ashamed of and you are not allowed to enter here. This is a sacred place. Go away. But the police refused to give in and fought back. Orders were immediately given to proceed with the search. Quickly, they came across a wide arsenal of mass destruction. Numerous containers of solvents were seized, as well as five tons of sarin and a large stock of botulinum toxin and ethane. According to experts, this was more than enough to kill 5 million people in less than an hour. Handling sarin was not an easy task and its manufacture required expert knowledge of chemistry, knowledge that only a scientist could know and master. On the roof, the police found a helicopter belonging to the community, an old Soviet-made machine, refurbished and made as good as new. They found that it had recently been refueled, probably for a last-minute mission. 
Going from one discovery to another, the police finally seized 700 million yen in cash, as well as 10 kilos of gold bars in the safes. They also evacuated about 50 people in an advanced state of malnutrition and under the influence of various drugs and psychotropic substances. They were found lying on the floor in rooms without mattresses or windows. Many were so dazed that they were dragged like packages into the police cars. The members of the sect present during the search violently attacked the police officers, threatening to court-martial them and have them arrested for breaking into private property. For the investigators, it was necessary to find the head, the spiritual father, the one by whom and around whom the whole religion enterprise revolved, immune and untouchable but nowhere to be found. This leader, this all-powerful prophet to whom his followers devoted unwavering love and devotion is called Shoko Ashahara, a man in his 40s, continually dressed in the same traditional purple linen outfits, with a beard and long hair, almost blind. He walked barefoot to be in contact with the earth's energies. When he was not in a trance or levitating, an exercise he mastered and had become his trademark. Shoko Oshahara is described by his disciples as a good man, serene, discreet, and benevolent, and a sort of substitute father who did everything to protect them from the outside world when they were vulnerable, alone, destitute, lost, or close to suicide. Now that they had the difficult task of protecting him from his many enemies, the cult's buildings were surrounded for the next few days and the movements of its residents was restricted, and still no trace of the mysterious guru whom the police were looking for everywhere. A national arrest warrant was finally issued against him and a prize was put on his head. Ashahara should not be able to leave Japan under any circumstances and orders were given to watch the border post. A few days later, in order to reassure his followers, the guru gave news through a videotape recorded in a secret place, sitting in the lotus position, hands clasped, hair casually loose on his shoulders. Eyes closed, Ashahara declared that the end of the world was now very near. Aware that he had long been under police surveillance, he said no more and promised to return soon and sort out things, while ordering his disciples to be ready at all times. Having enjoyed the support and protection of the politicians for many years, having become extremely wealthy thanks to the generous donations of money from his followers, having been invited by high religious figures in Asia, Russia, Shoko Ashahara could have quietly continued his journey as a prophet without ever having to worry about the future or the financial issue. But this time, things didn't go as he had planned. Now trapped, Shoko Ashahara analyzed his slim chances of getting away. Shall he flee to Russia? where some 50,000 followers would be waiting for him with open arms. Possibly, but he risked being snitched by the secret services. So what other solutions could be there? In a country still reeling from the shock of the recent attacks, a few timid voices were beginning to be raised, demanding that the guilty be brought to justice. Soon, ordinary citizens were also beginning to express their dissatisfaction with the police, who despite their efficiency had never been known for the quick and immediate interventions in this case. Why is this so? Firstly, because the country boasts one of the strongest security systems in the world. Secondly, and more importantly, because in Japanese culture, it is not good to complain and display one's suffering publicly. Generations after generations, this collective amrata has remained solidly anchored, a law of silence approved by all components of society which seeks first to avoid scandal and litigation before punishing the culprit for his crimes. A simple example, in Japan, a criminal may be forgiven by the victim's relatives, 
we would rather hush up the matter and settle it out of court than have it exposed in court in the public eye. In Japan, a victim, regardless of the crime committed against him or her, is always considered to be somewhat responsible, and this has an impact on the whole family in the long term. Why is this? Bushido, the code of honor comes into play from the outset. This reputation has preserved a certain patriarchal mentality, which still persists and which supports the preposterous idea that the victim also had it coming. It is in the same frame of mind that some survivors of the metro attack were already proclaiming on their hospital beds. Oh, and then finally I wasn't sick as all that. Oh, and then I could have gone back to work in the afternoon after all, when in fact they could have died and they were aware of it. But Bushido honor always honor forbids them to point a finger at the culprit, even a known one, almost preferring to share their guilt with him. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. Taking advantage of this collective resignation, Shoko Ashihara and the Umshin Rikyo sect went ahead with the attack without a second thought, planning it two years in advance, not hesitating to carry out numerous tests, experiments before unleashing the final killing machine. For the police, Shoko Ashihara remains an enigma, a character sometimes real, sometimes fictional, as dangerous as he is psychopathic. Yet his story and that of his sect began in a very different context. So banal, in a simple three-room flat in Tokyo, where a modest advertising poster announced, Sensei Chizu Matsumoto, yoga teacher for all levels. Shoko Ashihara, whose real name was Chizu Matsumoto, was born on 2nd March 1955 in Kyushu, a small island in the Kumamoto prefecture in southern Japan. His father was a tatami maker, his mother a housewife. The family has 14 children of which was the eighth. Little Chizu was born with an extremely severe form of nearsightedness that left him almost blind from the age of three. His childhood was spent modestly on the island, but his disability prevented him from making friendships, and so his only playmates were his brothers and sisters. He attended a local school for blind children. In 1977, he went to Tokyo where he planned to enroll in the university but failed the entrance exam. This failure, which he did not take kindly to, nevertheless led him to another course of study. 
acupuncture, and ancestral Chinese medicine, which he studied with great passion and interest. In Japan of those years, acupuncture was very popular with blind people from the lower classes, who were sure to make a living from it later. In 1978, Chizu married the young Tomoko Ishii, who became Tomoko Matsumoto, after her marriage. Tomoko gave birth to her first daughter, Rika, in 1979, followed by four more children born successively. Chizu, as the head of the family, was forced to work many jobs to support his numerous offsprings. Often short of money, but never short of ideas. He began in 1980 to market without a license. Filters and potions to cure numerous pathologies, such as depression or sexual impotence in men. It turned into a very successful business, which quickly brought him 200,000 yen in a few months. His customers were often university students or civil servants, whom he discreetly accosted as they left offices, schools, and the, in the underground. His remedies were sold under the table and were sold at an astonishing rate. Word of mouth helped to make him known. But the police eventually discovered this illegal trade and gave him a two-month suspended prison sentence. Shizu Matsumoto took advantage of his time behind bars to obtain and study braille books on Taoism, traditional Indian medicine, and astrology. He also became interested in monastic religions, particularly Islam and Judaism, which he found to have much in common. Upon his release from prison, he resumed his job as an acupuncturist while beginning to provide additional fortune-telling and exorcism services. During this time, he developed a special interest in Buddhist esotericism and the practice of a form of primitive yoga, which he began to practice on a daily basis to protect himself from negative energies. The idea of founding an institute bringing together all these disciplines began to nag him in 1982. However, with no capital and barely able to pay the debts he owed to grocery stores, Jizo Matsumoto spent his nights meditating on this project that was so close to his heart. Two years later, he gave it his best shot by opening a small yoga school in a three-room apartment building on the eighth floor in a quiet neighborhood on the outskirts of Tokyo. He named his school Amshinsen no Kai and held an open house on 10th January 1984. After a month of bad weather, the first client began to show up. They came from all walks of life. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, artists, university students. To give himself a special aura in the eyes of his future students, Chizu Matsumoto changed his identity and clothing and now called himself Shoko Ashihara. Every evening after work, his students rushed to him in search of meditation and relaxation, exhausted by the urban jungle, by the endless hours at work, and by their fast-paced lifestyle. But if that were all it took, a keen observer of life despite his blindness, Ashihara could quickly detect the evil that gnawed at most of these people. Loneliness and sexual misery, evils that are considered taboo in modern Japanese society. In addition to yoga classes, the future guru also offered exercises to learn levitation. In fact, he claimed to levitate every day before bedtime. Several students were challenged and they would take up the challenge. For hours on end, they were forced to meditate deeply in order to reach that second state which favored the lifting off from the ground. The result? No one succeeded. With this deception, Shoko Hashihara was careful never to levitate himself in public claiming that he only did it in strict privacy, far from curious eyes. The reality was that he was simply unable to do so. But the belief of his naive audience was enough for him, and he was becoming more increasingly popular. In 1987, the yoga school, Amshin Sen no Kai, gave way to a religious structure called Amshin Rikyo, 
literally meaning awakening to the universe and teaching the supreme truth. This was the basis of the sect in the making. Thanks to his new title, the organization automatically benefited from tax exemptions in the city of Tokyo. The infernal machine could then be unleashed. Having become the charismatic and ambitious leader he always wanted to be, the former acupuncturist multiplied the abuses. From now on, disciples were asked to pay him large sums of money to be enrolled in good standing. A very profitable marketing strategy accompanied this religious effervescence. T-shirts, cult objects, VHS tapes with the effigy of Shoko Ashihara were automatically imposed on newcomers as soon as they register. For the less fortunate, kits including a t-shirt, pen, meditation mat were offered at unbeatable prices. Now, not only do people come to do simple yoga movements, but they also come to listen to the wise words of Shoko Ashihara, the blind man with the vocal abilities to soothe the heart. The madness reached new heights, as did the guru's maglomania. A few millimeters of his bath water, strands of his hair, and even clippings from his nails were sold at a premium. From now on, he was enthroned every day on white silk sheets, sitting cross-legged, dressed in a simple linen kimono, and his long hair loose on his shoulders. His blindness had a mystical aspect, and he was believed to have many powers, such as curing incurable diseases and depression. By the end of the 1980s, the cult had grown to 10,000 members in Japan and 40,000 in Russia, where Shoko Ashihara's teachings were very popular. As a result, he was several times the guest of honor of Mikhail Gorbachev's government, which welcomed him with honors of a political figure. The sect multiplied its liaison office in Russia in full socio-economic decline, where the word of a holy man from the mysterious East became indispensable. In Japan, propaganda films were marketed showing Shoko Ashihara dressed in a simple loin cloth wrapped around his waist, meditating in the Himalayan mountains. The Dalai Lama himself admired him and often invited him to the Potala Palace. He was also a guest on television, notably in the entertainment program Fun, Takeshi Joe, famous throughout the world. In 1989, Ashihara planned to stand in the elections on the strength of his success, which was now international. He founded his political party based on the prophecy of the imminent apocalypse. His followers took charge of his electoral campaign, with propaganda films and manga, which were comic books and novels talking about the new age, spiritual rebirth, the end of the world, calling on the whole population to join for their own salvation. But the campaign turned out to be a real fiasco, and the party was eliminated in the first round with zero seats in the Japanese parliament. However, Aum Shinrikyo continued with or without his political distinction. Some criticized Shoko Ashihara for having bet a little too much on this legislative story. He made no comment but brooded deeply over this failure. The sect was withdrawing a little more into itself, living in a kind of self-sufficiency in the middle of the urban jungle. Many followers were now forced to abandon their homes and move into the newly acquired buildings in the village of Kamikushiki adjacent to Mount Fuji. Divide and conquer was a new mantra of the guru who wanted to subjugate his disciples to the maximum to make them his slaves, obeying all his madness with a flick of his finger and eye. From now on, physical and psychological punishments were the order of the day. A follower is a little too uncooperative to the guru's teachings? Lock him up by force in a tiny dark room in front of a television set that was on 24 hours a day, relaying a propaganda film. The follower only comes out if Shoko Ashihara decides to do so, that is, after a day, a week, or a month. Former businessman Ryotaro Kamagashi recalls, I joined the cult with my wife and three young sons in 1989. 
my children were sometimes unruly, which exasperated him, Ashihara. So he punished them by locking them in the cellar for a whole night. At the time, I didn't see anything. I thought he was doing it for their own good, that it was part of his attributes as a spiritual father. Other forms of abuse soon followed, such as the time when the aging mother of a follower refused to allow her son to sell the house where she lived in order to pay the money to the sect. So one night, three masked men sent by Shoko Ashihara broke into her house with a deed of gift and forced her to sign it with a gun to her head. The poor woman finally signed the precious sesame before being brutally executed. Some parents of the followers even began to complain to the authorities, asking them to intervene with the sect to stop the spiral, but their requests went unheeded. The Japanese authorities preferred to turn a blind eye because Om Shinriko, as a registered religious corporation, enjoyed legal protection against state interference. Since its creation, it had always been a contributor to political budgets, and the money it did not pay the taxes, it gave to politicians who in return gave it a sort of immunity. Forsaken by the police, forced to keep silent so as not to sacrifice their reputation, the families of followers, worried about not hearing them again, decided to hire lawyer Tatsumi Sakamoto to intervene on their behalf. But on November 4, 1989, Sakamoto, his wife and their baby were found dead and dismembered in their Yamanashi second home. An investigation was opened and members of the sect were suspected, notably a certain Matsumoto Chuyoshi a young architect of 28 known to be Shoko Ashihara's henchman. The case was dismissed, reinforcing the structure's feeling of omnipotence. At the beginning of 1993, Shoko Ashihara declared that he wanted to accelerate the apocalypse by means of attacks. One evening, he gathered his followers to tell them of his project, Macabre, to assassinate in record time the maximum number of citizens while granting the right to live for 10% of the population. For the first time, he spoke of biochemical warfare, cleansing and mass extermination, taking as an example the terrible gas chambers used by the Nazi during the Second World War. In order to carry out its activities, the sect acquired a 200,000-hectare farm in Australia, where it secretly set up laboratories to manufacture sarin gas. The toxic substance was extensively tested on Australian sheep flocks, whose carcasses were found by Aboriginal people who alerted the police. The following year, the Australian embassy refused to grant visas to the members of Am Shimriko, who then asked to be reimbursed for the price of the land and the farm they had bought there. After a long struggle with the Australian authorities, the farm was finally sold. Shoko Ashihara provided his scientific followers with the means to set up laboratories on site, using the latest equipment and technology. In May 1994, two laboratories specializing in manufacturing of sarin were set up in the village of Kamikushiki. From June of the same year, the sect began to carry out the first test of sarin gas it had manufactured. To do this, a first attack was committed in a car park of a supermarket in the province of Nagano, in the north of the country. The result? Seven dead and 200 injured. In the car parking, the police found traces of sarin released by a truck. This incident did not go unnoticed. Associations and magistrates began to raise their voices, demanding the arrest of Shoko Ashihara and his criminal cult. But even this time, the police did intervene, claiming that there was no evidence against them. But the decline of Om Shinriko was beginning, as some followers who had until now been devoted to their guru's body and soul showed the need to leave the structure. Former disciple Rotaro Kamagashi recounts, 
1991, I liquidated my car parts business and paid the equivalent of 300 million yen to Shoko Ashihara for his personal needs. Yes, it's a huge amount of money and I'm ashamed to talk about it now. But at the time, I thought I was doing something exemplary. It clicked all when one of my children, then age 10, was forcibly placed in a bathtub of boiling water as a punishment. That day, I decided to take my family and leave that horror den forever. For several years, the Kamagashi family was aggressively harassed by the followers, leading them to move more than 20 times before finally fleeing to the United States. Like the Kamagashis, others followed the same path and left the sect. Shoko Ashihara did not hold them back, but sent his henchmen after them to intimidate, blackmail, and extort money from them. Pushed to the limit, unable to denounce, silenced, many ended up committing suicide to escape this hell. As the spring holidays approach, which each year brings together several million people throughout the country, the sect intended to take action, taking advantage of the general festive atmosphere to divert attention from its plans. Early in the morning of 20 March 1995, six individuals belonging to the sect were sent to the underground stations of Chiyoda, Manorochi, Kasumi Gaseki, Nagatacho, and Hibiya. The sect intended to do much human damage as possible. Kasumi Gaseki Station in particular was targeted because it was a meeting point of different lines and because of the large number of passengers it received every day. Dressed in jogging suits, wearing surgical masks on their faces like most commuters in these times of seasonal flu, the six followers wanted to blend in without drawing anyone's attention. Their mission was to deposit the packages containing the poison as the doors were opened, to pierce them discreetly with the sharp point of an umbrella before fleeing. Each plastic bag contained about three liters of sarin, enough to create a real human catastrophe. After the terrible events that shook the city of Tokyo on that fateful day, investigations were directed for the first time against Asahara and his cult. Hiding for a month and a half, he was finally arrested during a commando operation in 16 May 1995. At first, he denied everything, because according to him, all that the police had managed to seize in the premises was in fact only used to make pottery and chemical fertilizers. A poor defense. Asahara was accused of being the main sponsor of the deadly attack in the underground, and then other charges were brought against him. He finally allowed himself to be taken in without further resistance. This is the attitude he went on to adopt for the rest of his media appearances and even during his trial, not saying a word the same apathetic expression on his face, sighing and giggling at times. Several of his followers were arrested at the same time. In Japan, the news of the dismantling Arm Supreme Truth's criminal cell created an unprecedented shockwave. Shoko Ashihara's trial began in 1996. Placed in pretrial detention, he made multiple requests for a review of his case. Without success, in September 1999, the sect affirmed for the first time that it was entirely responsible for the events of the Sarin attack of 20 March 1995, as well as that perpetrated in June 1994 in the supermarket car park. Shoka Ashihara's high-profile trial lasted eight years, after which he was sentenced to death in February 2004. Thirteen of his followers, including the six masterminds of the underground attack, namely Tomomitsu Nimi, Kenichi Hirose, his brothers Ikuhayashi, and Yasubo Hayashi, Maseto Yokohama, and Kintaro Toyoda were sentenced to death at the same time as him during the hearing, which was widely filmed and broadcasted by Japanese and foreign television stations. Shoko Hashihara remained on death row for another 14 years. He was executed by hanging on 6 July 2018.
he was 63 years old. Om Supreme Truth continued to make news even after the arrest of its leader. The sect was put under police surveillance for a period of 10 years. In the early 2000s, an attack similar to the events of March 20, 1995, was narrowly averted at a railway station in Hokkaido. The investigative journalist Haruki Murakami released a book titled Underground in June 2000. The book recounts the events of the Tokyo Underground bombing minute by minute, enhanced by real-life testimonies of the surviving victims who were for long silent. Of the 6,300 survivors of the sarin gas attack, many remained in a coma or disabled for life. More than a simple tribute and duty of remembrance, Murakami has sought through his book to shed light on the real evils that plague the various components of modern Japanese society, namely solitude, unspoken words, individualism, and materialism. These criteria have become real-time bombs in a country that has gone from a traditional family structure to the cult of a self-centered individual without empathy for others in a short span of time. The journalist wanted above all to pay tribute to these victims who, in his opinion, were unfairly neglected by the Japanese media after the attack. I wanted to put a face, a name, a story on each of these people who are so ordinary and who have been lumped into one collective category. Victims. However, when they woke up on the morning of 20 March 1995 to catch their metro, they were like you and me. Danger is often never where you think it is, Murakami emphasizes. Three years after the execution of Shoko Ashihara, Japan lives in the memory of the sarin gas attack. Some fear that the former guru will be elevated to martyrdom by secret admirers or that the sect will be reborn again. As many former Om Shinrikyo followers remain at large, scattered throughout the country and living under false identities. Some countries such as Canada, the United States, and the European Union have placed the sect on the list of the world's most dangerous terrorist organizations. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.